Ethel's Travel Tales, accounts from an addicted travel photographer. Israel, April 1975. It was now the Easter break from my junior year abroad at the University of Kent at Canterbury, England. Israel would be my destination for the duration. I arrived safely after an eight and a half hour flight. Normally it's five and a half, but we stopped in Zurich and Athens. A quickie world tour. Israel, what can I say? Not much yet, especially as I just arrived. Except, well, is it possible to sense a land is blessed when walking down the street? There's a marvelous spring smell, and everyone looks beautiful, even the old men who are of clearly immediate European descent. It's very warm and lovely here. After spending so long in the UK, it is, in effect, the first time I've been warm in six months. It could be an illusion, but Israel does seem pretty affluent. Lots of fairly big cars and nice clothes. The cheroot we took from the airport in Tel Aviv to my hosts in Haifa was a new Mercedes. This form of transport is like a taxi, but each passenger pays for only one seat, in effect, a seventh of a normal taxi fare. Apparently, they cost about 10% more than buses, but a Mercedes versus a bus is definitely worth that 10%. Also, surprisingly, there are more VWs here than anywhere else I've seen outside of the U.S. and Germany. Since it's been almost three months since I was last out of England, I'm finding it strange getting used to vehicles driving on the other side of the road. But the sunshine, nothing like a good six-month dose of England to get you to appreciate it. I first stayed with Hannah and Aaron in Haifa, old friends of my father's. Aaron works for the Army. I hope that's not a military secret, and is constantly on alert right now. I haven't noticed any extraordinary tension other than people talking about wanting peace all the time. The military seems completely integrated into civilian life. In the Sharut from Tel Aviv to Haifa, a soldier was sitting in the front seat. Haifa itself is a lovely city with a striking Baha'i temple up on a hill. I'm so used to Israel being the Jewish state that it's odd to see a shrine dedicated to a religion that's not Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. It's also nice to feel the sea breezes from the Mediterranean. Easter Sunday. Today, it's a normal working day. Banks and post offices are open. I returned to Tel Aviv to stay with cousins of my mother's and met my great uncle Marcus. That side of the family left Vienna when my mother was born at the outbreak of World War II. They transited to Argentina and then finally moved to Israel. The last surviving member of that generation, my great uncle, plied me with tales of my grandparents on my mother's side, whom I had never met. Strange to hear about my mother as a little girl. Tel Aviv doesn't have that much to offer except being a big metropolis. It has many of the benefits of a large city. Cafe society is very popular, especially as so much of the city lies along the coast. 
Still, the traffic and general noise jarred a bit after the relative peace of Haifa. However, on a family outing, we drove about 50 kilometers south to Ashkelon, a combination beach, national park, and heroic ruin. First time I ever waited in the Mediterranean. An old college roommate and her now rabbi husband had moved to Jerusalem, and I went on to stay with them next. Jerusalem is truly Israel. It's a fascinating and beautiful city, although not scenically in the same sense as Haifa. It's the intellectual, historical, and cultural center of the country. I stayed with these friends, who, to be honest with you, are a lot less disgusting as a married couple than they were as fiancés, and even though it's weird to think of them as married. I also found out that there are about 15 to 20 people from my own personal California university living in Jerusalem. I've seen more Americans here than any other place in Europe or even Britain. As for sites, I've seen the old city, Muslim, Armenian, Christian, and Jewish quarters, the Wailing Wall, the multi-religion Dome of the Rock, and the El-Aqsa Mosque. I spent some time following the Via Dolorosa, the route that Christians take following the way that Christ apparently, Christ apparently walked on his way to the crucifixion. Mea Shearim, the Orthodox and Hasidic Jewish part of Jerusalem, was another site. I had to cover my head with a shawl. It's a sort of medieval or 19th century ghetto where only the most religious Jews live. In some cases, they speak only Yiddish, not Hebrew, as the latter language is supposed to be saved for only when the Messiah comes. Secularly, I also visited the Israel Museum and Shrine of the Book, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, the Hebrew University, Mount Scopus, the Chagall windows at Hadassah Hospital, and loads of other things I can't remember. All in all, like Jerusalem, of Haifa and Tel Aviv, it's my favorite. I'm thinking of taking a Negev Sinai tour. I want to see the desert and its history. Places like Masada, the ancient Roman Judaic fort, the Dead Sea, a lot on the Red Sea, and in the Sinai, the disputed Abu Rudeus oil fields, Shamal Shek, and Mount Sinai. So on Sunday, I came back to Tel Aviv, and on Monday, I went on a four-day Sinai tour. It was rather expensive, but I could afford it considering the money I've been saving staying with relatives. The oases on the Gulf of Eilat on the Red Sea are paradises. Eilat, by the way, is spectacularly gorgeous, but unfortunately the tour didn't stay there for very long. The Sinai is also beautiful. We drove down to Sharm el-Sheikh, a very nice swimming resort type place, supposedly great for diving, but I like the place Dahab, which we went to first, better. I've fallen utterly in love with the place. It's very rough, undeveloped, and unpopulated by humans or by plants, just Bedouins and dromedaries. It's truly what one imagines when one hears of the Middle East, except it's by the sea. We continued down via a series of wadis, that is, huge dry riverbeds, often a mile wide, the desert equivalent to a glacial flow. It's from these trails that all the inland roads are made. The majority of the rest of the peninsula is mountainous, with Mount Sinai at over 7,500 feet. We went to Santa Catarina Monastery, built in the 3rd or 4th century AD, and climbed Mount Moses, or Mount Sinai as some scholars claim, at dawn. 
The path was lined with stones, so that it wasn't difficult to ascend, but the weather was so poor I couldn't see below. I suppose that lack of vista meant I could believe anything. We stayed at the monastery itself, a fascinating experience, but I had a bit of a problem. One of the monks asked me to follow him, and once in that room, he left to leave me with our leader. The guide then attempted to pin me to the wall with several inappropriate suggestions. I managed to escape his hold, quite upset with both the man and his surprising pimp. It did affect my enjoyment of the rest of the tour somewhat, however. The trip itself continued to the Red Sea coast to Abu Rudeus, former Egyptian land which the Israelis seized during the last war. It's good for nothing but oil and pretty much a pit. But having that black gold, no matter how ugly the landscape, is strategically useful. Mitla Pass, the route from the Red Sea to El Arish on the Mediterranean, is amazing. You really get a good idea of what it's like to have a war. Lots of uncleared minefields and remains of Egyptian war artillery. By the number of military bases and how they've been equipped, I'm almost sure there's going to be another war soon. It's scary, but unfortunately true. However, this time I'm going to have an extra interest in events, having seen the actual places. When the tour ended, I returned to Tel Aviv to be with the family. From there, we went to my cousin Sylvia's kibbutz. In effect, it is almost hers because she's been there 24 years, virtually since its inception. It's really interesting because she knows the ins and outs of everything. Her three kids, my second cousins, of 12, 17, and 21, have spent their entire lives growing up within the kibbutz system. There are some interesting aspects. Children never live with their parents. Till they come back from the military, ages 18 to 21, they always share a room with two to three other people of both sexes. Then they get their own rooms. My older cousins are part of the first generation that has grown up there, as the country was founded only in 1948. Unfortunately, the younger ones not only didn't know English very well, but were very shy. Kibbutz kids tend to be awkward with new people because their entire lives have been filled with only people they know well, and everyone knows everyone. I couldn't find out anything except what I observed, and I was there only for a day. That wasn't really enough time. Still, after the extensive tour my cousin gave me, everything from the infant's house, air raid shelters, to the grapefruit groves, pumps, and sheep shearing machines, it seems a very good atmosphere. It's really a combination farm and commune. I keep on thinking of what my parents would say if I told them I wanted to live on a commune or if I wanted to live on a kibbutz. Only in connotation is there a difference. Yesterday, we attempted to go to Masada, the hilltop fortress that the Romans attempted to conquer by a war of attrition from 73 to 74 AD. Starving out the inhabitants, the Jewish martyrs committed suicide rather than be taken by the infidels. Masada is supposed to be Israel's greatest monument to faith, and it was the one thing I didn't want to leave Israel without seeing. <sighs> the only thing worse than not arriving in time after driving four hours is knowing three hours before that you're not going to make it, telling everyone and having them ignore you. 
Now I know why Cassandra, the ancient Greek prophetess, went mad. Subjectively, it was a horrible experience. My second cousins, 14 and 16, were fighting each other. My cousin was hollering at her husband, who was driving like a maniac, and I was praying that we'd survive at every turn. I didn't like the idea of a salty grave in the Dead Sea. Finally, at 5 p.m., when Masato closed at 4 and my cousin was still attempting to get to the top, I burst into tears in a fit of anger and error and told them I wanted to take a bus to Jerusalem from where we were right now. Since I hadn't said anything the entire way, and I was the reason for going, everything calmed down then. Objectively, though, if I could manage it, the scenery was beautiful. We drove along the Jordanian border in occupied territory. The Israeli desert is really picturesque. When we reached the Dead Sea, things heightened, literally and visually. We hit about 200 meters below sea level, and the cliffs got that much higher. Brilliant reds, probably Nubian sandstone, with lots of caves worn into them. What we saw of Masada in the distance looked fantastic. We did reach the base of it and saw the last cable car disappear into the sunset, but I should have known fate was against us when we got that flat tire on the Jordanian border. Little footnote here. Years later, on a return visit with my mother, she and I did eventually manage to get to the top. Meanwhile, back to the current trip, we made our way back to Tel Aviv, arriving at 10.30 p.m. We stopped for coffee, ate a falafel in Besheva, and I was all right when we got back. There was no more sightseeing during the last few days left in Tel Aviv, hanging out with my family. I then had to return to my studies in England. On the flight home, I sat next to a friendly and chatty man who asked if I had a good time in Israel. Yes, overall, I said. What did you do, he asked. I mentioned the family and the Sinai tour. What did you think of that, he queried. It was all right, I answered, but it wasn't perfect. With whom did you go, was his retort. I mentioned the company, but said I didn't really want to talk about it. The man then reached into his wallet, showing me his identification that proved he worked for the company and pressed me further. When I described the incident at the monastery, my companion said that he knew the man and that the guide had accosted young women before. I'll do something about it, said my now friend. I don't really want him to lose his job, I countered anxiously. Don't worry, he won't, was his response, but I'll tell his wife. <laughs>